Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Why do we love reading about crime so much? I mean, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I mean, mysteries, thrillers, just crime. We devour stories about all of it, I think because it fascinates us. And if we're talking about true crime, then, well, we can kind of say it all started with the book In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, an absolute classic. But there are plenty of others that have taught us about the minds of criminals. And that's what these books actually do. They teach us about the inner psyche, the inner workings of the minds of criminals. And to join us now to talk more about this is Scotty Hendricks, a contributing writer for Big Think, who has been thinking about this, actually. Scotty, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Do you think there are certain books that have been more important than others when it comes to writing about the minds of criminals? Oh, I certainly think so. Uh, How can I put it? With literature, some things uh, you can simply tell by their influence, uh, which ones are going to end up more important than others. There are some great ones that no one's ever heard of, but uh, there's a reason that we talk about In Cold Blood even now. In Cold Blood was just seminal, wasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. What other ones would you point out? So I would also say uh, Crime and Punishment um, from Russia is one that is still talked about for extremely good reason. The psychological depth that um, Dostoevsky goes into with his characters and the range of human emotion that he explores with the crimes that his characters are committing is absolutely incomparable. Right. I do think, though, for some people, you know, Dostoevsky might be a bit of a challenge. I found that it's the right, it's all about getting the right translation for that book, isn't it? Because you can get a translation oh, that makes it way more readable. Absolutely. It is, a, it is a bit of a doorstopper. It is a bit of a doorstopper. But again, look for the right translation. What other books would you right. suggest? So um, if you're looking for something more modern, I enjoyed uh, Gone Girl. Oh, that one yeah. is a that one is a fictional novel, uh, but quite a thriller. And the first person approach that it takes with the different characters really gives you an insight into well, how is someone who's doing these things actually thinking? Because uh, if you're anything like me, when you're watching a true crime show, you think, well, how could anyone ever act that way? What what are they thinking? Well, with this novel, you get a strong idea about how that's going on. And if you want something a little more modern, that is nonfiction. I also enjoyed uh, Catch Me If You Can. By uh, Frank Abagnale. Right. So the the one that the movie was based on. Yeah. And why do you think that one is so significant? Well, so uh, I think that was significant, one, because uh, it focuses on a different type of criminal than a lot of true crime seems to address, uh, that of a con man. It's not quite so uh, morbid as a lot of the true crime that we see, but we're actually getting the explanation of how this person is able to do these things from his own point of view. And uh, I find in a wonderful twist, some people are beginning to question uh, the exact details of this uh, autobiography. But uh, I suppose that if a con man writes a slightly incorrect uh, autobiography in a certain way, it's still very accurate. 
And so why then do you think, Scotty, it's it is so significant to read about criminals in in this way, like fiction, nonfiction, versus reading about them in a scientific way, like in textbooks and things? Well, so I think um, I think there's a certain subjectivity that literature can give you that uh, nonfiction just can't address. I mean, we can go around and talk all day long about the sociology of crime, about the economics of crime, about certain tendencies that people might have. But with these novels, both the first-person aspects that people write themselves or the fictional parts, or even just Truman Capote's interviews, you're actually hearing from people what their motivations are, how they feel while they're doing it, why they're uh, in these situations that they find themselves in. And I think for most people who don't commit crimes, this is a certain thing that we don't understand most of the time. And we can begin to grasp these problems in a very different way than we can just from reading dry textbooks. So it shows us kind of the inner workings, you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what comes first, those inner workings? Or, you know, we don't want to think that a book would inspire somebody. I was thinking about the book like American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Yes, American Psycho is uh, quite a gruesome tale. Uh, I myself, uh, after reading it, my first thought was, well, I certainly don't want to be anything anything like Patrick Bateman at all. Right. Uh, that would be my hope for the motivation uh, that that book inspires, that, you know, stay, stand the straight and narrow afterwards. But even then, I think that it, it provides this subjective view that when you're watching on the news and you say, well, what, what goes through someone's head? Well, here's a potential example. I wonder that about any story I read about crime, right? Like you read anything and you're like, right. what? So how do authors do this? Are authors imagining it? Are they taking a leap of imagination? Are they studying it? Uh, it there are a number of different approaches people take. Um, going back to Truman Capote uh, in, with Inco Blood, he and Harper Lee moved to this town in Kansas uh, and interviewed very many people, including the uh, perpetrators of the murder in the novel, uh, interviewed them for some time. Uh, others study a wider number of cases and build up a psychological profile for fictitious murderers, um, sometimes very similar to existing ones. I won't provide any spoilers for uh, the novels I've mentioned. Yeah, about. exactly. <laughs> but it does say we have an endless fascination, right? You look at the bestseller list, and mm-hmm. it is all books like mm-hmm. thrillers, crimes, mysteries, and I'm I'm guilty of that as well. So is there <laughs> is there harm in this? Do you think, or are we all just we're just curious about it? I think we're just curious about it. I think that there's a it, it's perfectly normal to have some of these morbid curiosities. I think. And that's all this is. It's just a, a morbid curiosity for us to figure out, like, why are crimes like this committed? Why, is, why do crimes like this happen? Why, what do the people who do them think? Why is, why is this person different from me? And I think that these books provide a, a very vivid portrait of what those differences can be. Oh, they really do. Uh, Scotty, thanks for joining us this morning to talk about it. Thank you very much for having me. That is Scotty Hendricks, contributing writer for The Big Think, uh, writing about this, actually, about seminal books when it comes to the inner workings of criminals. The most important ones, just some of the ones on the list that he talked about there, In Cold Blood, Truman Capote, absolute classic. American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, disturbing but still significant. Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. And he puts down Catch Me If You Can, and you probably do remember the the movie uh, that had Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks in there, but he's talking about the original kind of semi-autobiographical book that kind of gives you insight into the minds of a, a con man, right? 
These are all good books and they're definitely things that we are fascinated by. I keep a list of all the books that I read and I was just, you know, before talking to Scotty, just taking a look at it. And honestly, I probably read 60, 70% some kind of crime thriller mystery book. I'm just just like everybody else. You love them, right? You love the latest Harlan Coben or Michael Connolly or whatever the case may be because the minds of criminals do fascinate us, right? Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I asked back to school. This was the first year in like 25 where I didn't have to think about back to school, clothes, school supplies, anything like that. It's been quite liberating. Our Scott Schatz joins us now, but you, of course, are in the middle of this. Oh, yeah. We have been uh, preparing for all week. Uh, my kids are very excited. My my older daughter, Sloan, she uh, had her clothes all laid out last night. Aww. She's got her new backpack and pencil case. She's thrilled for it. She's going into grade two. And then my younger daughter starts uh, gradual entry for uh, preschool. She starts tomorrow. Oh, those are exciting times. They are, but the gradual entry thing is such a pain in the butt. Do you really want to get parents worked up about this? Not really. I know. It's good. It's good for kids. I feel this. I feel I remember this like it was yesterday. Yeah. It's great. It's good for kids to get them used to it, but for parents oh, that first week, first two weeks, because now it takes a couple of weeks to get them fully ramped up, right? Yeah. Kindergarten takes a little longer. The preschool that we go to, it's gradual entry all this week, and then next week they're like fully, fully in, which uh, that's great. I just got to get through this week. It'll be, just, it'll be okay. Just get through this week. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I was thinking about back to school this morning. Cause as I was driving to work, I thought, what are all these, I saw these crowds of teenagers on the street this morning, like probably on my way. And I saw two dozen, which really on a normal commute, I would see zero. Right. And so I, did, especially outside the McDonald's, right, right by my, in my neighborhood. And I thought, yeah. what is going on? And then I realized, oh, you know what? First day of school, grade 12. That's what this is. This is kicking off the grade 12 year when it's a big deal. I was thinking this particular grade 12 class this year, though, they would have barely gotten into high school. What would they have been? Grade nine when the pandemic hit? I uh, Yeah, nine or 10. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. So this is obviously they're feeling it. This, they're going to sell. They're going to go out and enjoy grade 12. As they should. And is this when grad pranks kick off, Scott? 
Oh, I definitely think so. First day of school. Uh, and, you know, so you were uh, driving in at what, like 3.30 or something like, like 4, that? It was like 4.15, 4 o'clock this yeah, morning. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like they've probably been up all night and are yes, ready they, to they start. Like they've been up all night. <laughs> to start the school year with a bang. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in grade 12, I graduated in the year 2000. And so oh, it was like, deal. oh, we need to make this a big deal. And uh, we pulled a grad prank on the school the, the morning of the first day. And it did not go well. That summer, we had all of the grad students, uh, basically, I'm going to say borrow in air quotes, real estate signs. Oh, boy. And uh, we, we sort of stored them at one of the farms of a friend can, who- Can who I like, just, is it too late to put in our waiver on this one, our legal liability waiver to say, please do not take anything Scott says as a suggestion? I think the morning. statute of limitations has expired. <laughs> okay. But uh, so we stored them at somebody's farm because I grew up in Abbotsford out in the valley. And then on the night before school, I rented a U-Haul truck and we loaded them all in the truck. Everybody met at the school and we started putting all these real estate signs in the, in the lawn, like hundreds hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And at first everyone's being really quiet because it's like five in the morning as we're like running, putting these signs in the lawn. And then eventually everybody's a little excited and a yell and a yay and a woo and a grad 2000. And then the next thing you know, the cop cars pull up. Oh boy. And like 60 grade 12s scatter. Everyone scatters. But the U-Haul that we rented, I had rented it. in my, And so I was like, well, I guess I've Guess I'm gonna. So I remember, like the first day of school, the principal pulling in at like 7 a.m. and I'm sitting there on the curb with the police officer, and he's like, "What so, is?" Happening? So unlike John Strait, we're just gonna say you were not student council president. You know what, Sumi? I was student were you? council president. Yes, it was a, the start of a wonderful relationship between me and and the principal and of my school, school. administration. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. So handcuffs, whole thing. Uh, the whole thing, yeah. Back of the cop car. I mean, I didn't actually get. I think it was like scare tactic, but I was definitely scared. I was like, "Oh boy, this is." That's the idea. That's the idea, Scott. Yeah, yeah, but grad pranks, they're so good. I love them. Are they? Okay, so I'm sure a lot of principals and administrators right now are saying, please, Scott, don't say that. I, you know, we did grad pranks. I graduated, you know, before Scott. Let's just put it that way. And obviously you do grad pranks, but we're wondering, does everybody... Do grad pranks? Where I grew up, every school did it. Every school. There were so many stories of like, these guys released a greased pig in the hallway. And these guys, like, everybody slept on the roof of the school. And, you know, usually you hung something like a car on the flagpole. Yeah, tons of stuff like that. Or put a car on the roof of a vehicle. Release a bunch of chickens in the hallways and stuff. Yeah. I I used to love that stuff. And that's why I tried to go big on on my grad. Sure sounds like it. So, this is what we're curious about this morning is when do you remember what your grad? grad class did, did you participate? Uh, or is this something that didn't happen at your school? Because we're trying to figure out if this is a West Coast thing or did it happen in every province? Does it happen everywhere? I feel like everybody wants to celebrate their graduation. And if it doesn't happen everywhere, it should. <sighs> All right, principals prank. out there, vice principals, you know, administrators, direct your emails to scott at cknw. I might be able to implement some of these ideas oh or boy. pass them on to my own children. You can also email me, Simi at cknw.com. Would love to hear from you on this one. I know it's going to be a big year for those grade 12 students, and we'll be talking more about it as well. This is Mornings with Simi. We sure are. Rob Shaw's with us now, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. Now, listen, you know, the Star Wars um, auction is getting a lot of attention, but I was thinking you probably wouldn't be interested in this, would you? Because you're more of a Star Trek fan. I appreciate the Star Wars. Yeah, it's just a little... um yeah, it's a little crowded in the Star Wars field sometimes. So I oh, and the Star Trek field isn't. Like, <laughs> no, it's very it's very niche, very niche. Oh, I'm one is of the it? Only people. 
Yeah. Huh. I, I didn't think that at all, actually. I grew up with Star Trek before Star Wars came along. So did you collect yeah. action figures ever? I They're not action figures. They're limited edition maquettes, uh, and they have a, a, immense value. So I, oh boy. mostly Batman ones, not, uh, <laughs> not Star Trek or Star Wars. And not Trek Wars or Tech Wars, which is a totally different thing with William Shatner. Huh. If you remember that, not good. Okay. Not good I feel like I really stumbled into something here a little more than I had anticipated. Oh, <laughs> this sounds okay. like a much larger conversation. But we are going to talk about back to school this week too. So does, does, all, does everything change focus in Victoria in terms of the politics of things when it's back to week, back to school? Yeah, for a, sort of a brief period, yeah, you do see kind of a, a renewed emphasis on usually budgets and things that are set many months in advance, making sure that, um, you know, the government looks like it is putting enough money into education. Uh, you know, the education budget goes up pretty much every year. BC's added another $600 million to it this year. It's a record almost $9 billion for public and independent schools. Um, but the, what's happening right now is this immense jump in enrollment that is occurring. And we used to talk about school enrollment in BC as declining back in kind of the 2010s. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you remember the schools were closing and they were selling off those school properties, usually to those kind of uh, French uh, districts and, and independent schools were buying them up. Uh, now, though, like under the NDP government, I was just looking at some of the enrollment numbers uh, the other day and, um, you know, <laughs> BC's enrollment during the time that the NDP will be in power from 2017 until uh, next year's election, and if they win re-election beyond that, uh, they are going to see somewhere in, in the realm of like a, a 9% increase in enrollment during those years, which is Crazy. huge. I mean, we're, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're talking a massive, uh, massive number of, of students. Like there's 8,000 students this year, um, more than last year. And there's another almost 9,000 students next year. And then another 7,000 students after that. And this is on top of, you know, 560 some odd thousand students. So you see this like pressure on the system that has uh, come, uh, you know, from immigration and from uh, people having kids, uh, people moving to this province and the government's kind of struggling to, to, to deal with that over three years, like from last year until, um, you know, two years from now, we're looking at maybe 21,000 more kids in the school system. And just to put that in perspective, BC, when it talks about creating new student spaces, it talks about creating 23,000 new spaces since 2017. So in six years, uh, and we're talking about another three years and, and basically kind of swamping that. And that's why you hear from the school districts uh, and the school boards that they are stressed, you know, stressed in Surrey, stressed uh, over here in Langford and in the, in the big growing areas. And that no matter how much money government keeps putting into this, um, it's a, it is, it is a big, big part of the government spending now. You know what gets me about that, Rob, is that whenever there is um, a downturn in the forecasts for students where they think, oh, not as many, we're not getting as many students, they think that's the way it's always going to be. And they start <laughs> right, planning right. for fewer schools. And I think, well, no, this thing is cyclical. At, at some point, these kids are going to come back and the population is going to grow again. Like, why do we always make the same mistakes? Well, remember, there used to be a policy in the Ministry of Education where they would build a new school and they would build it to the capacity of like then, like that yeah. moment in time. Crazy. And then school would open and it would instantly be, uh, you know, too full and they'd have to plan for another school. So 
you know, this government has changed that policy, which I think was good. You, you build a school with extra space because you're assuming that the space is needed. And even then the schools are full by the time that they're built. So yeah, it, but there was a time when we did have declining enrollment and that sort of got baked into some people's minds that you, you don't give too much money to the school system. And then also under the last government, the acrimonious relationship with the BCTF meant that, you know, B, the BCTF uh, does a great job advocating for its members, but under some, you know, even this government, that can mean a kind of a tense relationship and government sometimes hesitates on doing certain things because they're part of the working conditions that the BCTF is, is, uh, is trying to negotiate. So, uh, there is a teacher shortage, and we've been hearing that in the news. We don't know how many teachers uh, there's a shortage of this year, because as the TF points out, we don't track that. Um, but we know that with the enrollment going up and government struggling to build enough schools, that there are the 50,000 teachers we have aren't, aren't enough. So that, that's another pressure on the government. We're talking about back to school and the BC government. Now, Rob, you talked about teacher shortages there and you said the BCTF doesn't really track it. Well, who does track teacher shortages? Uh, nobody. <laughs> school districts check, track them individually. You know how many teachers they're short. and um, But it's not something that the the government tracks the extent that the teachers union wants. And so that's one of the requests is to, and they've been asking for that for a long time to, to get on uh, that data. The, the risk when you have a teacher shortage, according to the, the BCTF, I mean, there are obvious ones, but especially in rural and remote areas, you end up using more uncertified teachers, which is a kind of rare thing, but increasingly common, uh, you know, for on call to help sort of fill vacancies when there aren't uh, simply aren't enough teachers and the teacher on call list uh, has already been hired to full time uh, teachers. So there is that issue. I mean, the government feels like it has done a fairly good job in trying to incentivize teaching. It's not that long ago that the teachers got a new contract. They voted 94 percent for it. Um, young teachers got an $8,500 increase in their salaries. Experienced teachers got more than 13000 You can Teachers have crossed the $100,000 pay threshold for the first time now, uh, and they got additional prep time and that type of thing. So the government feels like they did incentivize uh, to the extent that the teachers wanted some of the financial aspects of, of teaching, and they're hoping that you can get more teachers in and uh, increase the training seats, increase the international kind of credentialing and, and get them going. But if the enrollment continues to increase, like we were talking about, then the teaching staff has to increase with it. And that that pushes the education budget higher and higher and faster and faster. It's just like one more area where we can't keep up, right? Like we talk about family doctors. Mm -hmm. These things take years for us to see if if it's working. It, we, they, and I remember, you know, when I graduated high school uh, and, and some of my peers went off to become teachers and they finished their education and they couldn't get a job. You know, they had to get at the bottom yeah. of the on-call list and there wasn't enough positions because, again, that enrollment was not doing so well. And so it's hard to plan for the future sometimes when it, it takes so long to make a shift in the recruitment and the training, and yet the, the trends haven't been aligning in that direction. So that, it's a big challenge, and different districts are wrestling with it in different ways, and the government's trying to, to keep up with it, and they, they put money in, but you're right, it takes years to sort of balance that out. Okay, and the issue of building schools, I know, is going to come up here too, and have they committed more money to that? 
Yeah, the government has, but in its own service plan, it talks about how um, it is more difficult to build schools right now. And the premier was at the opening of a new elementary school in Coquitlam on Monday, the Coast Salish Elementary. And the issue that the government's having is, ironically, uh, a shortage of workers in the construction sector to build new schools, inflation, making it more expensive and, and pressuring its budget. And so you actually see it um, you know, spending less on building new schools this year than it did in the previous year. And the plan is to ramp that up. Uh, and certainly, you know, government's going to be hearing from the school districts on that, especially in Surrey and other places where the government spends record money and it's still not enough. You have to think three, four years into the future and, and match those trends. So it's spending a lot of money. Uh, it's spending almost a billion dollars uh, in building actual schools in, in the next year, but uh, it is not enough. Uh, and it's not going to be done for two to three years. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. Remember, eliminating school portables in Surrey was an election yeah. promise that the government never even remotely came close to uh, at all. And no one it's like they're treading water, anymore. right? They're treading water. No, they're, they're building new schools, but there's so many new kids coming that essentially the number of portables is the same as it was like five years ago. Exactly. Yeah. And and now double-deckering portables is a threat in Surrey that uh, has become a political football, too. So it's a challenge. And I don't know if the challenge for the BC United is going to be, you know, coming up with a plan on education funding that is um, more aggressive than it was when it was in power. And when it was in power, it wasn't that aggressive at all. So it, it's, a, it's a real challenge for the public to look at the two parties in the next election and figure out what exactly the difference is going to be when when it's such a hard uh, issue to tackle. I feel like this is such a huge issue, though, as you point out, in Surrey in particular, that, you know, we talk about Surrey being the balance and what really changed there in terms of that 2017 election. This was one of the issues that made that happen. So I feel like it's a tricky area for BC United, too. Yeah, it, it will be. Um, they. <laughs> They could promise to eliminate portables, I guess, but portables increased under their watch when they were in government. The NDP could promise to eliminate portables, but they haven't made a, any progress at all on that. Uh, so the promises for Surrey voters, uh, it's going to be a little tough to take, I think. Uh, and the best that you're going to get when you break down the two plans is that they're going to spend more money on education yeah. and it's probably not going to be enough. That's very, very true. Um, Rob, thank you. Before I let you go, we were just talking about the new school year earlier. We talked about grad pranks. Did you have a grad prank when you were in grade 12? I don't think we did. I don't remember that far back. It was those. You were, don't those remember that? You're not that old, Rob. <laughs> Come on. Well, I, I don't know. I'm getting old. I'm getting old. Uh, me no, thinks think that you don't want to talk about it on the radio. That's what I, I think. I actually don't think we did, but I'll come up. I'll, I will cast my mind to that and come back to you tomorrow. Yeah. Anybody who went to high school with Rob Shaw, could you please remind uh -oh. him of the hijinks no, that he no. got up to in grade 12? Yeah. 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 I would uh, love I'll to hear that. Know. Yeah. Please. Thank you for that, Rob. Okay. Take care. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. 
Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this morning in Ottawa, a trial will get underway. This involves two key figures in the convoy protests of almost two years ago now. And what a lot of the discussion centers on here is the issue of free speech. So is that what is at stake here? And do we as a group fundamentally even understand what free speech actually means? Well, that's what we're going to talk about with our next guest, actually. Clarice Perron is with us, instructor of philosophy and president of the Philosophy Graduate Students Association at Dalhousie University. Clarice, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Do you think that we Canadians understand the issue of free speech? I think um, a lot of what's talked about in sort of the everyday language of human rights and free speech and what we understand um, is separated quite a bit from the history of human rights and the roots of how rights came to be through ethical theory. I specialize in ethics. And so um, one of the things that's always frustrated me is sort of this uh, critical aspect of we always have to think about our obligations to others when it comes to human rights Um, If we're going to be having some sort of human right or declare that everyone deserves a right to something like free speech, what's at the heart of this is that everybody deserves that right equally and that we have to uphold that right in others as much as they uphold it in us. So I think what's usually missing from a lot of these conversations and these protests is that ultimately free speech hinges on us continually thinking about how our actions might be harming the rights of others. Okay, it's interesting you say that because when I think a lot of people would interpret that to feel like that's fine if you get free speech, I get free speech too, but we don't think of it in terms of my free speech may harm someone else. Totally. And I that's where I see, you know, that the laws against hate speech coming in. Um ultimately when we live in a society with other people, we have to have some limits to our free actions. If we actually want to pursue the goals that we believe in, the beliefs and preferences that we all individually hold, well, those could never trump the rights or the freedoms of others. So it's very reasonable to limit the kinds of free actions or the free speech that someone might have if that ultimately harms someone else's ability to do the same thing. Okay, is that where the court then, is that the kind of the fence post that the court puts in, is we have to judge what the harms are by what it is that you said or what happened? Yeah, um, all the way through the last couple of years, I mean, we can even, <laughs> why why is it wrong to kill people? Well, it's wrong because ultimately you're limiting, completely ending another person's ability to act freely in society. So, when we think about something like hate speech or the limits of free speech, those sorts of limits are reasonable because it prevents someone else from navigating the world freely without any sort of fear um, in you know, being who they are and pursuing the sorts of things that they want to pursue. Right, but how do you measure that? How do you measure that fear or someone being prevented from pursuing the things that they want to pursue? Totally. This is one of the complications with with human rights, with rights theory in general. Um, Does everybody have a responsibility to uphold all of the rights for everyone at all times? 
that's a very big ask. <laughs> that's going to yeah. take a lot of thinking on all of our individual actions at all times of day to reasonably think of these limitations and how our actions might harm or help other people. Um, and I think that's something that the courts deal with in the legal side of things. So it's, it's always complicated when the, you know, the theory of rights comes into like legal practice, which then comes into sort of policy and how it's talked about in uh, the everyday world. So that's one of the challenges that the courts have to decide is at what point is it harmful enough that we can limit someone else's actions? So does it seem as though as long as we have talked about the issue and the right to free speech that we've also been talking about what the limits are to free speech? I think so. I mean, I think that's maybe what's been on the back burner of of the conversations a bit. But yeah, ultimately, I think with um, the light of this new trial uh, coming coming to play, it's, it's not so much that this was a peaceful protest because it wasn't. It interfered with a lot of people's lives, um, the freedoms that they have because they were possibly afraid to go and navigate downtown Ottawa when the convoy was in place and things like that. So that's that's the measurement then, is it? Yes, you can protest, but when does your protest harm other people? Totally. And all rights have that sort of limit. That's just a natural way, I think, that we can separate it. And determining what's bad enough, um, that's... That's very difficult. People can write dissertations on that. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I'm sure people will be. So you're going to be watching this case very closely. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, especially because the lawyers are claiming that it was a peaceful protest. Um, But obviously, it's been sort of an unprecedented protest. We haven't had a protest like this in Canada before. So uh, I think it'll be very interesting to see what um, the lawyers on both sides um, yeah. are claiming. <laughs> yeah. it, oh, it absolutely will be. Clarice, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really interesting discussion. That's Clarice Perron, who's an instructor of philosophy and president of the Philosophy Graduate Students Association at Dalhousie University. We're talking about the issue of free speech. Yes, people are entitled to free speech, but that doesn't mean that it there are no limitations on that. There are, as Clarice just explained really, really well. And that is the issue that kind of will be at the heart of this trial that gets underway in Ottawa today. It's expected to last about 16 days. And it's two of the main people that were involved in the Freedom Convoy protest of almost two years ago. And so those arguments that Clarice was talking about there, you will be seeing in watching and reading about those unfolding in the courtroom over the next two weeks. And we'll be keeping track of it, of course. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about affordable housing this morning. Our Scott Chance has been digging into this issue. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you, Simi? I'm good, thank you. What are we going to learn about this today? Well, let me tell you about something. Well, I'm knowing you, I'm sure you've probably heard of this. What do you know about land value tax? Okay. I have heard about this. This is like another way of trying to bring down the sky high housing prices, right? So, yeah, yeah, kind of. So I was a little bit confused about this when I stumbled upon an article on it. So I got in touch with the writer of the article. His name is Peter Wills, and he's a doctoral candidate uh, at the University of Oxford. And he's writing about how this idea of something called a land value tax 
could help sort of balance things out because, yeah, we do need to increase the amount of housing that we have and the affordability of housing. But all of the people who have gained so much value because of housing, they don't exactly want to give up that value as well. And it's possible that land value tax is a way to sort of bridge that gap. I mean, ultimately, you're not going to be able to like bring costs down to like 1970s levels. But I started just by simply asking him if he could explain to me what even is land value tax. So the land value tax is exactly what it sounds like. It's a tax on the value of land. It means owners of land that is more valuable would have to pay more in taxes than people that don't own land or people that own very less, much less valuable land. How is that different than property tax, which we already have in Canada? So a property tax is about the property that's built on a land. It taxes you more if you build something great on the land. Land value tax is just about the land if it's bare. So imagine like a parking lot in downtown Vancouver or an empty, an empty plot of land. How much would you pay for that? That's its land value. And you can see that the land value in Vancouver, if you had an empty parking lot or in Kamloops, would be very different. And it's about taxing the difference between being in Vancouver versus being in Kamloops or in rural BC somewhere. And the reason for that isn't that you've done a lot of work to the land, if both of them are empty. It's that other people around you have made that land more valuable by their investments in their land. Okay. And so your property value goes up because, you know, like the neighborhood, say the neighborhood is getting, um, you know, sort of gentrified and people are moving in and stuff. So now that property value goes up and, and you would pay more tax on that, even though you're not doing anything or developing that piece of land, just the value of it has gone up. So now you pay more. Exactly. That's actually a feature, not a bug of this, of this tax. It says that someone who waits around and lets everyone else do the work of making that city better, and they just wait and sort of squat on the land, are not getting to reap all the benefits. It says everyone's making the city better and everyone should benefit. And the way we do that is by collecting part of it as taxes. Without a land value tax, the person that waits can grab all of that benefit for themselves. With a land value tax, it gets shared amongst the public. Imagine you have a plot of land with nothing on it, but it's worth $100,000, and you pay a 5% tax. So yeah, you're paying $5,000 in taxes. With a property tax, if you build something really great on it, you build a big condo, you build new retail, you build office buildings, anything that people like and want to use, then you're going to pay more money in taxes under a property tax because you've built something and that property has value. However, if you just have a land value tax, then the, when you build something more, you can afford to pay that $5,000 more easily because you have, say, new condos or you have a restaurant that's on site and it can pay you some money when you own the land and those rents turn back to paying for your taxes. It increases the incentive for people to actually use their land the best they can. The tax wouldn't change because the value of the land is the same whether there's a property on it or not. Exactly. Is there anywhere in Canada that's doing this right now? Not right now, but really interestingly, Vancouver used to. Hmm, Back in the 1900s, Vancouver was built, uh, had one tax. It had the land value tax. And one of the reasons Vancouver attracted a lot of population in the early 1900s away from other parts of the Pacific Northwest was that its land prices were cheaper because of this tax. So it got more people to move. 
and the prices stayed low. Now, the really interesting question is, why did they get rid of it? Um, and that, that has some interesting answers in sort of Vancouver history. Yeah, can you answer uh, that? Well, yeah, so as far as I'm able to understand it right now, one of the ideas was that land value taxes punished land speculators. So people that bought up a lot of land and said, hey, I'm just going to wait on this land and wait till it gets really valuable, and then I'll flip it to somebody else, and I won't do anything in the meantime. They thought those people would get screwed too much by a land value tax. And so they said, no, 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 we've got to protect the really rich people with big plots of land. Over time, it also became that you know more people owned smaller houses, and they wanted to reduce their tax burden. And this sort of put up a wall between people that owned land or houses and the people that didn't. And that's how the land value tax died in about 1910s, 1920s in Vancouver. It's, it's interesting, like how you say it's like, oh, it was designed to protect real estate or land speculators. And now, like in 2023, real estate speculator is a really dirty word in Vancouver. Exactly. Exactly. And, but in some ways, everyone that owns land in Vancouver is speculating that the land will keep on going up. That's the property ladder is you're guessing that the land will keep on increasing in value. And you're hoping that you can ride that. What do you say to people who feel like that this is um, some, some form of socialism, a step towards uh, why should I have to pay for someone else's house? People who sort of see it as a step in that direction. One piece of the answer is this is what living in a society is all about. Another answer is this is the tax that even the most right-wing economists like. That's not to say that they are the only tax they wanted to have, but there's even including it as part of a portfolio of taxes, maybe something that's more suitable for the modern Canadian world. Okay, well, it's very interesting. What do you think the chances are that we actually get something like this? Because it seems like a pretty good idea to me. And when we break it down like this, it actually could, I feel like it could work. I think it really depends on the politics. And I think that the question is who has the political will. Okay, well, that's Peter Wills. He's from the University of Oxford. And Simi, I know that there's not always simple solutions and this isn't going to be perfect, but I think at this point we need to start trying some things. I think you're going to meet a lot of resistance on that one because it really discounts, it assumes that everybody who buys property is in it to watch it speculate and get higher. But they are. We're not. <laughs> I, you know, you, you buy property and you hold on to it and I'm never going to sell it because, you know, where would my kids go at this point? So you're leaving out a whole bunch of people who are barely hanging on to the property that maybe, they have. Maybe, maybe. It's hard to feel <laughs> bad for property owners, Simeon. I know, I know. <laughs> I get that too, but a lot of us are just barely holding on to what we have, Scott. Um, thank you, you for that. It. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, teaching is always a bit of a struggle, isn't it? Trying to find the best way to help students learn. And as we know, students all learn differently. They've got unique challenges. And we're always trying to think of ways that that might help them, you know, benefit, might help them give them a bit of a a boost. And, And one thing that has come up, one suggestion that's been made, is by helping students to learn Braille, that by teaching them Braille and helping students understand it, that it might help improve their cognitive development so they are more open to learning other things as well. It's really interesting. So to learn more about this, Lisha Yakimowitz joins us, the manager of Paths to Literacy. Lisha, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, it's great to be here. What are the benefits of, of learning Braille? Like, are these benefits open to everyone? 
Well, in a perfect world, we'd have access to Braille everywhere, and it would just be a part of our normal everyday, just like, you know, printed street signs um, and, you know, access to every building would have Braille, like you see in hotels. So um, I, I'm a firm believer in um, letting children have access to Braille um, because it develops their fine motor skills, and also it's a lot of fun to learn. Right. The fine motor skills is a big one then. So is that the benefit? Like what what do kids get out of learning Braille? Well, it's like learning another language. Um, Your mind has new pathways to learning each time it has a new learning experience. So if there are books that they get out of the library or order and there is Braille on the books, um, they are touching the letters and the words while they are looking at them. So I, I'm a big believer that it, the, the more access you have to sensory input, um, the better you are able to learn um, and have tools to access new content. So would this work for any language or is there something specific about Braille that is a benefit? Um, So if you have any type of learning disability, including um, dyslexia, learning Braille um, takes away the visual piece. So there are no dyslexic people in um, languages that are printed from top to bottom. So learning to read left to right through your vision, it can also be a big struggle to a lot of our students. So um, if we expose them to Braille and if we act like Braille is a part of our life, just like print, then um, that might be another mode of learning that um, looking at print might not be the best option for some of our learners. Okay, so is this something that kids are doing or do you feel like, no, we need some more convincing on this? Well, I think not just the kids, I think adults as well. Um, I think there's a lot more interest in sign language. Um, People seem a lot more um, exposed to learning some simple signs. Um, So I think there's that fear factor of, well, I don't know Braille. So how do we get Braille in more classrooms, in public settings, and in books? So I think it's just a matter of exposure and campaigning and showing everybody that Braille can be a lot of fun to learn, just like learning print can be a lot of fun. You're so right about the sign language, though, right? That That's really come yes. a long way in the last 20 years. A long way. Oh, yeah. And um, I do not see as much of a push for Braille because, again, I just think it's not in a lot of people's wheelhouse if they don't know braille then they don't feel comfortable if they have a student coming in the classroom who's learning braille they're intimidated so we have to kind of take away the fear of it and just bring it to the forefront with everybody and it could be a learning process that we all kind of gather over the next five ten years and then ten years from now hey it's not such a mystery anymore you talked about the importance of fine motor skills here too. I know that, mm-hmm. that that is so important and I feel like we're coming back around to that idea, aren't we? The importance I of those fine motor skills. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. It, um, I think a lot of research has been out there um, with the, the one of the benefits of the video games is a lot of students have great fine motor skills with navigating technology, look at how they can use an iPhone over someone who's like my age in our 50s. So uh, I think that the importance of fine motor skills goes beyond just, you know, writing in cursive, which is becoming outdated now. 
fine motor skills um, help develop our brain in ways that we don't always think about. So, you know, using Play-Doh, um, having exposure to textures, especially if you're visually impaired, having um, the ability to touch Braille is a skill that you have to develop. And if you're not um, in a world full of tactile stimuli, your fine motor skills are going to suffer. Okay, so if this is such a benefit to kids, well, wait a minute, would, would we adults also benefit from learning this or is it too late for us? It's never too late. Just like, uh, you know, they say when you learn a new language, it's harder as you get older because the pathways in your brain kind of slow down. But um, let's take a look at older adults. How many have visual issues? How many are using magnifiers and bifocals and that, that you know, sort of technology? If um, they've had exposure to Braille at a younger age, they would probably enjoy reading a Braille book much more than struggling with a magnifier trying to read a newspaper that the print's way too small. You make a good point there. We could all stand to learn something new. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That is Alicia Kimowitz, who's the manager of Paths to Literacy, making the argument that for kids... And everything works. Like for kids, it's all good, right? They are sponges. But she's making the argument that if they learn Braille, it helps open up and improve the pathways to better cognitive development, just like learning another language and especially helps with fine motor skills, which as you know, kids can always use some help with. That's one of the big markers, especially for kids in primary grades that they look for, uh, is how are their fine motor skills coming along? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, body-worn cameras are a fact of life for law enforcement in the United States. But in Canada, well, that's a different story. We've talked about it. It has been recommended by multiple coroner's inquests. So why is it taking so long? Well, one of the big issues is money. For instance, outfitting RCMP officers right across the country, that would be costly and some are warning about that, actually. Craig Hodge is with us now, a Coquitlam City Councillor and member of the Port Coquitlam Joint Police Detachment Advisory Committee. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, good morning. Now, has the committee been looking at the issue of body-worn cameras for RCMP in your jurisdiction? Uh, we have, but uh, I also uh, co-chair the uh, RCMP Contract Management Committee for, uh, for British Columbia. And so this is uh, an issue that's uh, I've, I've been of concern for, for municipalities uh, right across uh, British Columbia. And, you know, in the discussion about body-worn cameras really began about three years ago, uh, following the, the police-caused death of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, you recall, where the officer had knelt on his, on his neck. And, uh, and I think, you know, at the time we were in the middle of the pandemic, and I think people were sort of, you know, really reflecting on society in general. And I think policing and police accountability and, and sort of racial justice and everything was really being called into question all around the world at that time. And it was a couple of weeks later that uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau announced that he wanted the provinces and the RCMP to equip officers uh, with body-worn cameras. Um, so here in BC, we have uh, 12 municipalities with their you know, own municipal police force, and the rest are, are, are contracted with the RCMP for, uh, for their police services. Okay, so then where is the progress, or is there progress being made then on equipping the RCMP with body-worn cameras? Yeah, and you know, they, this idea has been floated around since as far back as 2019 or 2016, 
And the RCMP originally rejected the idea of body-worn cameras due to uh, you know poor performance and concern over the over the cost. But following the the directive, they began doing tests on various models of cameras. And a national rollout was originally supposed to happen back in mid 2021. And it's uh, only this past January that the federal government finally chose the supplier, which is going to be Motorola, who's going to uh, make the cameras. And uh, the RCMP are now, from what we've been told, just completed testing uh, using, uh, I guess, 300 officers of various RCMP detachments in uh, Alberta, Nova Scotia, and Nunavut. And uh, so we're expecting the national rollout to begin in phases starting this fall. And, uh, you know, we've been told that uh, they'll probably start with uh, a small community, a large community. The, number, the, the cities that we're hearing are likely to be Tofino, um, Prince George, Kamloops, Mission, Cranbrook, uh, you know, just a small number. And then the rest of the RCMP detachments around BC will start receiving the cameras and implementing the program over a 12 to 18 month period. 12 to 18 month period, though. So it's still going to be another couple of years before we see this fully rolled out. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I, I, I certainly, you know, I think the initiative, you know, the addition of the cameras is a really good initiative because I, I think when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, doing investigative work, it's going to help with investigations. It's going to, uh, uh, you know, help resolve any questions about police conduct. And I, and I think uh, that the, uh, the, the general public believes that uh, it's going to make policing more uh, transparent, improve accountability. But, you know, there are downsides to the cameras. And, and one that you've highlighted is the, uh, the cost. What about the issue of protocol in terms of how they are used? Is that something that's already been developed for the RCMP? I know every detachment is kind of grappling with this. We've talked to Delta about this. We've talked to Vancouver about this. What is the policy around that? Yeah, I think that uh, each uh, department is going to have its own policy. The RCMP is going to be developing policy as well. Uh, you know, some of the things that need to be con- considered are the, the privacy for both the officers and the public. Uh, there's going to be operational protocols for when the cameras will be turned on or off, if you will. And, uh, you know, one of the big things that we're concerned about is uh, who's, who's going to manage the files uh, to maintain security and file preservation. And, and, you know, and again, for municipalities, cost is a big factor. And the RCMP, is, as you mentioned, you know, the RCMP estimate is about $3,000 per officer. Now, in B.C., we have 4,100 RCMP officers under contract to uh, local governments. Another 800 are doing provincial police work. And then you have 2,500 municipal uh, police officers. So not all of the 74 officers in B.C. are going to be equipped with the cameras. Uh, because it really depends what the work they're doing. But say in my city of Coquitlam, you know, even if half of our officers uh, were uh, have cameras, uh, that's going to be over a quarter million dollars to uh, to my budget. And uh, you know, and this doesn't even include the the, the cost, the time cost to security manage the uh, the video files. And uh, one of the concerns to all municipalities across Canada with the RCMP is that when this program was announced, municipalities with um, with RCMP contracts, we're told that the federal government would support the transition and the implementation with funding through to April of 2024. Well, the program's taken so long to get going that the funding's about to expire before most of the officers actually receive their cameras. And, you know, one could probably argue that, if, you know, it's probably in the Fed's best interest to delay a little bit longer. Do you think that's going to happen, though? There'll be another delay in this? 
I don't think so. I think, you know, we're finally going to get it going. But, uh, you know, it is a big concern now that the funding has run out, and that, uh, you know, that uh, municipalities are going to be on, on the hook for the majority of the cost. Um, you know, and, uh, and as I said, it's not just the cost of the cameras. It's going to be the training, the technical support, and the ongoing management of the digital files that have to be protected. And, you know, in case they're needed later, you know, needed later for investigatives or, you know, potential complaints or in court cases. Right. And it's going to require hiring some staff to manage this. And, you know, this is at a time that policing probably most communities makes up 25 to 40 percent of a city budget. So so this is a big ticket. You know, policing is a big ticket item and it's paid for primarily through property taxes. You know, Councillor Hodge, I think a lot of us wonder, like, why are we so far behind on this? As I, as I said earlier, in the United States, body worn cameras have been around for years. They've clearly figured it all out. What is taking us so long? Yeah, I, you know, I'd have to ask the RCMP about that. Clearly, they thought that the performance wasn't there. I think, like all technology, it's, it's gotten better. I think, you know, you just have to look at, uh, at, you know, at cell phones and computers and our smartphones. I think, uh, I think the technology has improved to the point that, uh, that those concerns are gone. As I said, you know, there's still the concerns over how things will be managed. But I, I think that uh, we can learn from uh, other jurisdictions. And I, and I think generally the, the general public uh, wants to see the cameras. And, uh, and I think it's certainly disappointing that, uh, that it's taken this long to, uh, to roll them out. And, uh, and I'm hoping that once they, they start to come, that uh, we're going to get a, a smooth transition and get them going. And I think uh, others, other uh, non-RCMP uh, detachments are, are also doing pilots. You mentioned Delta. Uh, Vancouver, uh, back in December, uh, set a goal of equipping all of their patrol officers with cameras by 2025. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing it happen. I think we're, we're behind what the states are doing, but uh, uh, I think that uh, we're certainly going to see uh, our detachments moving ahead with them shortly. All right, Councillor Hodge, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you might have been surprised to hear, as I was, that the city of Vancouver is ending a three-month pilot program that allowed alcohol consumption on certain beaches. I thought, wasn't this a done deal? Didn't, didn't they decide that, okay, this is going to be allowed now? So what's actually going on here? Well, let's find out. Jaspreet Verdi joins us now, Park Board Commissioner for ABC at the city of Vancouver, to talk more about this. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So are people allowed to drink at certain parks? Like, what's going on? Um, people are still allowed to drink at 31 parks in the city, but just not at beaches. Um, because it was a pilot, we have to wait for feedback. Um, and staff are currently waiting for feedback from the BPD, Vancouver Coastal, and the Sanitation Department um, on how it was received. All right. Do you think that's going to confuse people, though? Because parks, beaches, it, that's a line that I'm sure a lot of people aren't going to actually distinguish. Um, there are adequate signs everywhere, um, and the Vancouver uh, City website has uh, good information about it. So is this going to be uh, something that bylaw officers are going to be looking for now? Um, so it just goes back to how it was before, and yes, drinking is not permitted on the beach. Um, and until further notice, um, the parks are still, um, you're allowed to drink from 11 to 9 p.m. Right, but just not at beaches. Just not at beaches. Okay. How do you think this pilot project went? Uh, personally, I think it, it's been pro- positive and it's been received well. Um, but I would like to review information that's going to come from staff in early January uh, to make any further comments on where we're going to go with this. 
Right. So what were some of the things that were put in place to deal with this? You talked about the VPD has to report back. Like, were mm-hmm. there, well, yeah, did the pork board have to mitigate some of this? Um, we still haven't heard back from staff um, and they're still compiling all the information they received. So it's just a little too early to say anything. How do you think the summer went, though, in terms of accessibility at parks and, and people getting out and about? Um, from a personal standpoint, I, I found it to be well-received and, and everyone enjoyed it. I, I personally enjoyed it. So I think it's been good so far. Would you have a list, though, of things that you would like to tackle for next summer? Um, still, I think it's just too early. I think we need to review the data before commenting. But did you support the idea of more drinking in public parks and beaches? Um, so I'm the one who brought the motion forward. Um, it was a project that I was working on. And I think, I, I mean, adults are responsible and they've shown that in, in the parks pilot. Um, so I think it was only natural to extend it to beaches. So you would, would you support the idea of this continuing? I would. Okay. Were there any concerns that came up? Um, again, we still haven't heard back, so um, I'm just waiting to review that data, and then and then we can comment on it. Right. Do you, do you get the impression, though, that people get a little frustrated sometimes with the park board, wondering, like, why do we keep reviewing all this data? Why do we keep going over it? Why isn't this just a done thing? Well, I think it's just a characteristic of a pilot, and it gives the public uh, a chance to give some feedback and input on how things should go forward. Um, Okay, so what else then would you like to see tackled? Um, I think things are going well. I think just um, maybe the cleanliness, um, just garbage. Uh, People need to be a little bit more responsible in how they deal with the garbage. Although I haven't heard anything back yet. Um, Again, that data is crucial uh, before we can say anything. Do we need data on that one? (laughs) Can we just walk out (laughs) on the street and see... Uh, don't you think we have a garbage problem? Um, I don't. I don't think it's been any different than than what's been in the past. I don't think this pilot has contributed to more garbage. But again, I just you know the data is critical, and when we hear back from staff, I think in January we'll know a lot more. Well, we saw all the pictures on social media, though, didn't we? I mean, I've certainly seen a ton of pictures. I was down there myself. I saw it. Like even overall, I think there is a bit of a sanitation issue. Is that something that the park board needs to work on? Um, when we hear back, I think the sanitation uh, department's going to report back on, on the findings. And then once we hear what the issues are, I guess we can tackle those. But what about during the fireworks? Do you think everything went well? I think things were pretty well. Um, yeah, I, I think they, they went well. You tell me you didn't hear any complaints from people? Like people didn't email you as park board commissioners to say, hey, listen, we've got to do a better job of X, Y, Z? Um, I haven't heard anything personally back, no, but um, we've been off for about a month now. Uh, and, and I'm sure once we get back in the office, staff will be letting us know what happened with the fireworks and, and with this uh, pilot. I'm sure they will be. Uh, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Have a good one. That's Jespreet Verdi, who's a Park Board Commissioner for ABC at the Park Board of Vancouver. Now, come on. I think we all know. There is a sanitation issue, right? I, I can't tell you of anybody who has said to me, oh, um, things look really nice and neat and clean in the summertime in downtown Vancouver. I heard nothing but the complete opposite all summer long. So I don't know, seems a bit obtuse for a park board commissioner not to know that, but I'm sure they are going to hear all about it 
when they get back to work. And here's the thing. If you think it's messy out there, clearly the park board needs to hear from you on that. Uh, it is messy out there. During the fireworks, like, listen, I love the fireworks. I was front and center and talking about what a great event it was. But we do need to clean up after. People need to clean up after themselves, and we need to be on it in terms of collecting all of that litter. What did you see out there? What does the park board need to work on? And this whole differentiation between, oh, you can drink in a park, but you can't drink at the beach, I say good luck with that. Are people actually going to be able to figure that out, even if there is a lot of signage, as Commissioner Verdi just said there? No, people are going to say, I thought... I thought I was able to drink in the park. What's the big deal here?